Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Josh Smith Show. The Josh Smith Show is brought to you by Paragon Kilns. Paragon Kilns are some of the fastest heating and most accurate kilns in the world today. Uh, I, in my own custom knife-making business, and so many knife-makers that I know, use a Paragon Kiln uh, just to increase the accuracy and the consistency of which their knives are heat-treated. Check out the Paragon Kilns at paragonweb.com. Also brought to you by Montana Knife Company. Montana Knife Company knives are working knives for working people. All Montana Knife Company knives are 100% American-made, hand-finished, and hand-sharpened. We here at Montana Knife Company believe that manufacturing can be done here in the U.S., and that's where our knives are built. Check out MontanaKnifeCompany.com, and we are also on Instagram at Montana Knife Company as well as Facebook. Also brought to you by Maritime Knife Supply. Maritime Knife Supply is a place I buy my belts, uh, buy a lot of my sandpaper. They also sell steel, grinders, heat treat ovens, just about anything else you can imagine. Maritime Knife Supply is located in Canada, so even though it takes a little bit longer to ship your stuff down here, you can take advantage of the exchange rate, uh, which is actually a pretty good deal when you're putting in a fairly big order. Check out MaritimeKnifeSupply.com and at MaritimeKnifeSupply on Instagram and Facebook. Let's get to the show. Today, I'm interviewing Rick Dunkerley. Uh, Rick is from Lincoln, Montana, and he's a master bladesmith in the American Bladesmith Society. Rick is also a member of the Art Knife Invitational, uh, a, a select group of makers that you have to be voted on and approved by the makers in the show. The only way to get in the show is if someone drops out or passes away. It's a very prestigious group to be in. Uh, Rick is actually the guy who taught me how to build knives. Uh, he was my little league baseball coach, as you're going to hear in the podcast. Um, he's an incredible maker, uh, has had a meteoric rise to really the top of the knife making game. Uh, he's a guy that's put on hammer ins, uh, taught at schools, taught at colleges, uh, been featured in books, had his knives featured all over the place, including on covers of, ni- of uh, knife magazines. Um, has traveled worldwide uh, showing his knives and teaching, has been a, a backcountry guide, um, a rancher, a logger, and everything in between. Uh, he's, a, he's a mentor and a friend, uh, somewhat of a father figure to me, um, and uh, somebody I, I care for deeply, and it, and it just made sense to have him as my first interview on the Josh Smith show. Um, so I would like to welcome Rick Dunkerley. All right, we're here with Rick Dunkerley in Lincoln, Montana. Uh, we're sitting here in his living room. Um, so, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, getting over 
COVID, so well, that's <laughs> why better I thought, every day. I thought we might kind of start there with what's been going on here recently. You, uh, it's been a while now since you've actually were diagnosed, huh? Yeah, I I started feeling sick uh, right before Thanksgiving, and then I, two days after Thanksgiving, I was tested and tested positive, and it's just been a pretty rough road until the last week or so. I've really started to feel better, but yeah, yeah. So that's. I mean, we're talking, we're actually after, I don't know what the date is, but it's after the 1st of January yeah, it's, now. It's the 5th. It's been six weeks today since I started feeling sick. Now, you said you didn't actually really get, I know we talked on the phone here a while back, but I mean, you didn't actually really get the cough or the lung stuff. You, no, it never really affected my lungs at all. It's a sinus and uh, um, I had other symptoms, you know, severe body aches and uh, stuff like that, but yeah, loss of smell of course my sinuses are so plugged i couldn't smell and my taste i never lost it but it it changed like some things don't taste right right well i guess that'll be a decent excuse if you have to snivel once in a while you know having a pandemic i guess is probably a decent (laughs) excuse so um i think we'll go back we'll kind of start i mean uh, i i should i guess i should say here first i mean you're a custom knife maker um full-time custom knife maker living here in Lincoln, Montana. But I think before we get into the knives, we'll just kind of take it all the way back. I think for the people that don't know you, um, and, and kind of see, so where, where were you from originally? I was born in Western Pennsylvania, uh, uh, born in Sharon, but I was actually from a small town, Hickory, Pennsylvania. It's now renamed to Hermitage, but yeah, I still have family there. And uh, I I grew up, finished high school there. Mm-hmm. Uh, went went into the service from there. Okay, so what did your what did your folks do when you were growing up? Uh, my dad was a a police officer, and my my mother worked part time at at different jobs, so yeah. grocery store, you know, checker, clerk, bank. What were like your that. like as a kid, childhood stuff? Like, what were you interested in, or did were you in sports, or what? Yeah. Yeah, I, I played do? all sports pretty much right through uh, to a knee injury in, in high school that kind of ended my contact sports stuff. And uh, outdoors, I was really into the outdoors right from, uh, I can't ever remember not being interested in hunting mainly. It was from the time I was little, I knew I wanted to hunt. Were you in a fair, fairly kind of rural area there? Or? Uh, actually, for the part of Pennsylvania I grew up in, I was. I I most of my childhood I could go out the back door and and be in a place that I could hunt something yeah um now so moving on you said you you went into the service what what branch did you go into I I went into the Air Force uh in 1981 okay and what would you what was your job in the Air Force well I went in to uh to be a cop and Throughout the training there, they had some different things you could look at. One of them was a canine, uh, and I, I ended up taking the canine school, and as that was nearing completion, I actually got volunteered to be a dog trainer instead of a cop dog handler. So I spent my four years as a dog trainer. You volunteered to do that, or you kind of got uh, put in that spot? They, my instructors in the canine school volunteered me. Why do you think they did that with you? Was it something that they saw in you, or that's what they said? They, I, I, because I, I didn't, you know, all the schooling that I had been to 
up to that point was in Texas in the summer and it was really hot. I really didn't want to stay in Texas, but they, they volunteered me. And when I asked, you know, what had happened, they said, well, we thought you'd be good at it. Yeah. So I didn't have any choice. Now was the dog, you know, I don't, I, I've, I've heard some about like the dog programs they have and stuff now, but was that, was the dog program a fairly new thing for the military back then? Or is that, was that a pretty established program? Well, the dogs were established, um, in the early eighties, the, the whole military, the Department of Defense, was having a major push for more dogs, more drug dogs, more bomb dogs, and more attack dogs, patrol dogs, we called those. Um, and so I was actually one of the first 18 people that being a dog trainer was my job. Hmm. That was a new thing. We called it the Green Dog Program. And... You know, by the time I was done, it was an interest service. There were initially it was all Air Force, but after about three years, they brought in all the other branches, and we went from twenty some Air Force people to probably sixty some dog trainers from all services. Did you train? Were you were you were you training the bomb dogs or the drug dogs or or attack or were you kind of doing all of that stuff? Oh, yeah, I trained all the, all those types and a few specialty. We trained a few dogs to track for special things. We trained some dogs for U.S. Customs to work on the border with Mexico to find illegal vegetables that were coming across the border. Really? Yeah, so yeah, it was a, it was a really great job. I loved the job. Uh, what would a what would an example of a test be for like a dog to to pass or to get through that course? I mean, because I don't think people quite realize just what those dogs are capable of. Well, a patrol dog, which like you say, you would a police dog, the common one you would see as a civilian dog too. Is the dog had to there was an obedience portion of the te- the test to certify. It was, you know, relatively simple: sit, stay, heel come from a distance, then work on hand signals only instead of voice, uh, do all those same things. Then the dog would do an obstacle course, which a lot of people have seen that on TV where the dog's jumping through an open window and walking across a catwalk, hmm. go, crawling through tunnels, you know, 55-gallon drums put on end, you know, and, uh, you know, some agility stuff. And then they would do... A patrol dog would have to search a building and find a person hidden in the building. Search an outdoor in a field somewhere outdoors, a large field where so, with someone hidden, they'd have to you'd quarter the field using the wind, and the dog would have to find the person. And then the attack portion was they had to be under control. The dog, the 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 decoy, the person that was going to be bit eventually <laughs> bitten, yeah, would would have to, you'd have the dogs at the sit heel position the person would run up and run right up to the dog and run away and the dog would have to maintain until given the command oh. to attack they'd also have to do what we call a false run where you sent them on the attack but called them off before they bit the guy oh then they would have to bite and release on command and then you would do uh, a search like you if you had apprehended a suspect you would put the dog at the sit walk six or eight or ten feet, I don't remember the distance we used, and search the person. And the dog had to sit unless the guy was physical with you. Then it could attack without command. Oh, really? But they always had to release on command. 
So that, that's basically that's what I could. It's been a long time, so that's what that's what I remember. That yeah, the certification and the drug dogs were. They had to search different. We had to search barracks. We had to search vehicles, and they had to be, if I remember right, over ninety percent correct, with a less than ten percent false response, which is would be finding something that wasn't there. Yeah. Um, and the bomb dogs were a little higher than that. Hmm. They had to be, I think, 95% correct with even less false response because you could be dead yeah. <laughs> if you found didn't find a bomb or if, you know something like that. So, yeah, it was a very interesting job. And uh, How old would a dog be when it like usually was kind of at its prime to, to actually maybe release out into the field to use? They, were, they would be a, a minimum of a year old when we got them. Or training, and I I don't remember the upper limit. Maybe four or five, mm-hmm. and I didn't think it was worth putting the time into the dog for the time they would get out. Sure, yeah, and then you know the detector dogs, bomb dogs, drug any dog that's sniffing for his career, mm-hmm. their lifespan is much shorter because they're sniffing up dust and stuff all the time. So they they don't last as long. Their their lifespan is shorter. I was listening to a podcast the other day, the guy's mic drop podcast, and he was in he was in the military, and now they're doing stuff with like, um, and I don't really know it all exactly that well, but they basically are taking dogs that are retired and then helping try to place them. Because, I mean, with some of those attack dogs and stuff, it's like, what do you do with those dogs? You know, or even some of the dogs that maybe fail the program at the end. And But it's right, incredible. Yeah. Listen, and he was interviewing, you know, some guys that were, you know, just retired military, but they were talking about using those dogs in, you know, the Middle East and just how much they counted on those dogs is pretty incredible. I know? see, uh, yeah, I see a lot of that with the dogs, you know, searching ahead of patrols and you know, finding IEDs, you know, um, which they would be very good at. That would, I, bombs actually are not a hard thing to find for them. They, the problem with a bomb dog is getting it to go right to the source because the smell is is much greater than most explosives is than say drugs. So if they, when the dog walk, if it were in a building, a dog would walk in the room, he would probably know as soon as he was in the room that there was a bomb there, mm-hmm. but he needs to track that to the source. Sure. Because you know, you want to find it as quickly as possible. So, well, and it'd be hard. I, I know, you know, you wouldn't want to use those dogs as far as with like IEDs that are buried and stuff. Cause obviously you don't want the dog stepping on them and, Right, and um, we trained our dog. It, there's aggressive response for finding whatever they find, and passive. And all of ours were passive, where they, when they found it, they sat. Hmm. Um, aggressive. You would never want an aggressive response bomb dog, where it would claw at what it found, because it could set it off. But you know, there uh, there are some drug dogs, at least back then, that were trained to be aggressive response, but. The, the military didn't do that last year when we were or a couple of years ago we flew to costa rica and when we were in seattle the lines of people in in line at the tsa was just ridiculous and the the one lady sent us to the other end of the airport to you know she said go to the other end it's going to be a lot faster down there so we hiked all the way to the other end of the airport six of us and we get all the way down there and there's more people and i was pissed i'm like why in the hell do we walk all the way down here? It's going to take two hours. Well, quickly we realized like the line was moving unbelievably fast. And, and so then as we started getting closer, I mean, it's a sea of people and, uh, 
the TSA people are yelling, leave your shoes on, leave your coats on, anything you think you know about TSA, you don't. Like, every basically, unless it was a huge, a huge parka or something, you left everything on and went through the TSA. Leave stuff in your pockets, the whole nine yards. And they just had a dog walking around, and quite honestly, that dog never even really got close to me. Not within probably more than 20 feet. And I asked that TSA person, I said, you know, I mean, the dogs aren't even really getting that close to everybody. And he said, honestly, that really everything you do at TSA is for bombs for the most part. And, you know, there's obviously maybe a little bit of drug stuff, but security-wise, they're only really worried about the bombs. And he said, if somebody walks in this room with a bomb or some kind of a device on them, that dog's going to know. Exactly, yeah. They're, they're, it's pretty incredible what they can smell. More, you, you cannot imagine what they can smell. I, yeah, I told the guy, we, well, we need a lot more dogs and a lot more airports because this is awesome. Yeah, it was, it was amazing what they handled for numbers of people. So how long were you in the military then? Four years. Four. And then what did you do once you got out? Well, from the time I was a young kid, I always wanted to go to Montana. I, it's, uh, I, I honestly can't tell you why other than probably I read it about it in a hunting magazine. And, and that was always... I bet I was not a teenager, and I already knew. So I came to Montana. And what, where, where did you, um, would you just load your pickup up and just drive up here, yeah. or what? I w- well, I was married, and my, my wife actually had family in Ennis, Montana. Okay. So I ended up working on a ranch in Ennis, Montana. And what were you, just ranch hand, or what were you kind of doing? Yeah, just ba- everything. Yeah. Whatever you do, you know different every season's different every day is different basically how old were you then um 24 almost 25 when i came to montana i was just a couple months short of 25 sure and by then i had actually been making knives for over a year oh really yeah so where where did that how did that happen um or was your first exposure while while i was in the service i because of our hours as dog trainers, I had great hours. If in the summer we started at about three in the morning, but I was done at noon because it got too hot for the dogs. So, about the last year in the service, I had a a part time job as a security guard at a company at the San Antonio airport, and I uh, I met a guy there that was making knives, and. I really wasn't interested in making knives, but I ordered one because I liked to hunt and I thought it was really cool that he made them. You know, I did, I, up to that point, I had never heard of anyone making knives. I thought you just went and bought your shred or your buck or whatever. And Right. So I, I got to be friends with him a little, and I was very interested in traditional archery, and I, I wanted to make recurves and longbows. And back in the early 80s, the, the, the guys that did that, we're not real open with information. Mm-hmm. So I was struggling with that. And I, uh, I went to this knife maker, Lonnie Hedges was the knife maker. And I went to his shop and he said, Oh, you should just make a knife for the heck of it. So I made one and that was kind of it. I, it's, the guy that I trained dogs with bought it and there it went. Was he like a stock removal maker or did yeah, he actually, or? actually he, uh, at that time was, buying blades and putting handles on them and i i like i say i didn't know anybody did. that's what i thought everybody did right 
And that was about what year? Uh, 83. Yeah. And uh, I did, I can't remember how many I did that way. 10, probably not 20, I, I, but I honestly, I don't remember. Sure. And I was at a show, uh, outdoor hunting type show in San Antonio, and I was walking through and I saw a guy that had a sign up. He was a knife maker. So I stopped and talked with him and told him I made knives too. And I showed him one and he could tell immediately that it was a blade that I bought. Yeah. And he said, well, if you don't make the blades, you're not a knife maker. (laughs) Yeah. So I went home and sold a couple of guns, get the money to buy a belt grinder. And I bought one and taught myself to grind a blade. Now back then, what, what kind of a belt grinder was it? It was a Wilton square wheel. Okay. That, which they still make. I wouldn't recommend that if you can right. if you can afford <laughs> something better. But I you know, I didn't know any different then. And yeah. there weren't as many options then. Yeah. It's like those new Travis Wurtz grinders, it's like comparing a Corvette to a Fiat or something at this yeah. point. Yeah. It's uh it's a it's a whole different thing. Yeah. <laughs> so you you got to Montana, obviously you brought your knife what what you had for knife making equipment yeah. with you. You set it up at the ranch, or did you have kind of? I a did. Garage there was or... a big shop on the ranch, and they let me set it up in there. Now, just because I, you know, with my history and knowing you, I know at some point down there you got somehow into outfitting a bit, right? Yeah, and being an outfitter, guide outfitter, was <laughs> the only job I ever knew that I wanted. I, I uh, from the time I was in high school, I thought that's what I'm going to do. And of course, I. Ended up going in the service, and but once I was in Montana, I, I, you know, making knives. I met lots of hunters, and I met some outfitters, and one of them said, "I'll give you a job in the fall." And the yeah. ranch rancher was nice enough to give me the hunting season off. Well, and you're a big guy. I mean, you to a to an outfitter, I'm sure, and I'm sure you were in pretty decent shape back then. So coming out of the military and everything, and I mean, what are you six four or six two six six two? And, but you're a big pretty big strong guy so as far as an outfitter goes i'm sure he's thinking that that guy can pack a lot of shit on his back for me probably well yeah i mean it was (laughs) it was horses and packing and all that uh and i i absolutely loved it that's you know and i never so i got my first guides license in 1987 now had you ridden horses before (laughs) not much not much at all yeah no um but this is not you know riding horses with a pack string is not like riding bucking horses at a rodeo it's they're mostly you know well at least not down the trail yeah i mean it's a (laughs) horse things can go wrong but yeah for the most part it was it was pretty now you're came you're coming from flat hot texas to you know mountain country of of ennis um i'm sure there was quite an adjustment to some of the altitude and some of the hiking and um do you remember uh, that being kind of just, were you kind of shocked by the mountains, the size of the mountains, and or was it kind of what you'd always pictured and imagined? Well, yeah, I not so much. You know, at, at that age, I, I think 87, I would have been 26, you know, but I had been in Montana for two years by then. You know, I had pretty acclimated, and I had been to Wyoming and Montana before I actually moved up here, so mm-hmm. I knew that. The mountains are bigger than they than you think when you start to climb. Right. You know, and of course, you know when I was in, I was in really good shape back then. I I had I had run 
several marathons while I was in the service and I, I continued to run just to keep myself in shape and then working on a ranch will keep you in shape. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, I didn't have much problem with it. Now, what were you, you said you got your guides license. Was there a certain amount of time you had to put in or was, like, what was the test or? Well, there's no real test in Montana for a guides license, a Mon, an outfitter's license. There's some qualifications and, and, and a, an actual test you have to take, which I did do eventually and, and mm-hmm. bought my own outfitting business. Sure. What were you guys guiding? What animals were you guiding for and stuff down there? Uh, elk, um, you know, we'd, we'd shoot a deer now and then and shoot a bear, black bear now and then, but it was elk hunting. Yeah. So you're, you were an Ennis, and then how is it that you ended up here in Lincoln? Well, I after about four years of working on the same ranch and for $600 a month and never getting a raise, I decided I could do better. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I quit there. And I was just work day working basically on ranches and making better money. And then I, I had, I had also worked for a post and pole outfit, cutting posts and poles. So I, I'd run a chainsaw some, and I I ended up going on a logging job for a guy and falling timber, and that led me to Lincoln. Oh, logging. Really? Yeah. They were, was that a logging outfit that was located here in Lincoln or were that, was that just, they just had a job up here? They had a job up here and when that job was done, I, uh, I didn't, they didn't have another job right away. So, you know, I had pulled a camper up here, was living in a camper and I. Now, were you single at that point? I mean, I know you moved to. Yeah, I was divorced by then and single, um. And yeah, I, I just kind of went around town in Lincoln when I saw somebody I could tell was a logger yeah. <laughs> saying, is there any work? And I, and I just kept finding work. Yeah. So that's how I ended up here now. And so how long did you end up logging? Well, you know, before you, um, kind of moved on into the outfitting and stuff here. Well, I was still outfitting in the fall. I would take the time off and go, uh, and was that a point where you were still just guiding, or did, yeah, when did you actually end up with your own outfit? I bought my own outfit in '99, so it, you know it was ten years down the road. But okay. I still continued to guide for other outfitters. Mm-hmm. And was that guiding here in in Lincoln, or were you guiding down in Gardner still? Um, mostly here in Lincoln in the Scapegoat Wilderness. Okay. And for people that don't know, Lincoln's kind of situated right up against the Continental Divide, and kind of right on the edge of the the Bob Marshall wilderness and the scapegoat wilderness is just literally just a few miles North of Lincoln. So it's, it's definitely, and there's, there's quite a few guide out, or at least back then there were quite a few outfitters and that was a pretty, pretty popular thing. It was a well-known area for guiding and hunting. Um, so you're, you're logging. And then at what point did you, uh, you know, when I, when I met you, I was 11 and, and, you know, at that point you were coaching baseball and you were dating a, a friend of mine's uh, mom and they had a ranch. So at what point did you end up on the ranch and, you know, how did you meet um, Susie and kind of how did that all happen? Um, you know, I'd been in Lincoln for not all that long when I, when I met her, uh, just a chance meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was still logging for probably three years after she and I got together and were living together mm-hmm. 
till about I, I'm pretty sure in 95 is when I quit logging and, and we were together then. Now, where were you at near? So, you know, and we should kind of backtrack here. So, you know, in that 95 time frame, at that point, you know, you were logging and, and guiding and, and then working on the ranch and doing that kind of stuff. But all along while this is all going on, you're still like pretty aggressively pursuing your knife making well, some of that time, I wouldn't say aggressively. I, I would, you know, I started off making stock removal knives in 83. And I did that for about nine years. So about 92, I uh, I read an article in Blade Magazine by Ed Fowler about uh, forging blades out of 5,200 ball bearings and heat treating them yourself. And, and, you know, making stock removal knives back then, I was working in batches of 20 blades and sending them off to be heat treated. And the thought of just being able to work on a knife from start to finish and do everything myself was so attractive to me that I thought I got to learn to forge. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, that's, I got to. And so I did, I, I got a hold of Ed Fowler. He kind of steered me to, he said, there's a guy in great falls that's forging in Ed Caffrey. So, Ed and I, I went and visited him, and I, I started forging. And we we, well, we didn't collaborate on knives or anything, but we, you know we were friends for mm-hmm. a while there, and and that's where I started forging, and that's why because I I uh, I just love the idea of being able to control the whole process and just work on one knife. I was so sick of grinding twenty blades at a time that I just right. And that and that's what I don't think what a lot of people maybe nowadays quite really grasp or think about is back in that time period, you know, there was a few knife publications, you know, knives knives illustrated and blade and couple couple, but really guys like Ed Fowler and Wayne Goddard, I mean, they they both wrote articles monthly in Blade, kind of how to stuff, um, tips and tricks and whatever and, and really for the most part that was the only information that was really out there that you could seek out every, every month and get. Cause nowadays we live in the Instagram and YouTube world where everything's always available. But I mean, it, it's actually pretty cool that we lived close enough where you were able to kind of go down and see Ed and, and so yeah, kind of cultivate 11 hour that. drive, I think, but you know, yeah. I did it s- several times. Uh, yeah, I, I always think it's funny now because I made knives for, Five or six years before I even knew there was a Blade magazine, I I, I had no idea there was a magazine about yeah. knives, and I had talked to two knife makers in that time frame, and you know got a tip or two here there or there about how to do certain things. But I, you know, back then most guys were pretty self-taught because there just wasn't there weren't that many knife makers. That, then there there weren't all these schools there weren't there wasn't social media with youtube videos and, right. and all of that so it was a, a different time and now you look at it and it's pretty amazing how quickly people can get really good right but i i also see what i see a lot is that the people that have learned a lot on their own are better problem solvers about 
when they run run into a problem with knives, they're more likely to just tackle it. Whereas now I get phone calls all the time or, or texts or, or messages on social media asking a question. I think, man, you can't figure that out. Right. But it, it's just a different time. Right. Good or bad. So kind of back on that time frame there, that, that's a pretty that's pretty close in that time frame where I met you. So how how is it that you uh, ended up your? Well, I mean, you're dating. I mean, you've, you're dating Susie, but I mean, you're somewhat of a single guy um, working on a ranch and logging and outfitting, kind of doing all this. How is it that you ended up becoming a little league baseball coach? Like well, what what made you decide that's what you wanted to do? Well, there was a shortage of that here, <laughs> and I think I I think sports are are important for. I mean, now it's not politically correct to say young men; it's be young people. And I think your sister maybe well, was bullshit. on my team for one They're year. They're young men, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, my sister actually was, yeah. But uh, yeah, I I just think it's a great developmental thing to develop confidence and and. And things so well, and you were quite a baseball player when you were young. I mean, you you kind of brushed by it, but I mean, when you were in high school, you were pretty serious about baseball uh, until I had let's just say till I wrecked my knee. I, I was you know I was a catcher, so wrecking your knee really makes that tough. But yeah, yeah I still baseball is my favorite sport. I as to watch it, and so there there was a, there was a need, and then Josie was. Uh, you know, he was that age and I wanted right. to make sure that he could do that. So, yeah. And Josie was, was Susie's son who, um, was one of my best friends and we were the same age in the same class. And so, um, yeah. So, and, and, and so now you're working on that ranch, uh, or you're working, you know, with Susie on that ranch and, uh, um, kind of helping raise Josie and hope Josie's sister. Um, at what, you know, I do kind of remember a time period back then when it did seem like, you know, and it was kind of that time period, it seems like when you were going down to Ed Fowler's house where you really did start to like turn a corner to get more serious really into the knife making stuff. I mean, you guys were, you were doing some testing on, you know, heat treating and edge cutting stuff. I remember you cutting, you know, with, you know, you were using 52100 steel and you know, kind of talk about that time where it, it seems like that's when it really started to turn into a little bit more serious instead of just a, a hobby or a knife here and there. Yeah, I would say, you know, I did my ABS journeyman test in 95. So I, I'm thinking it's right in that time frame when that really, you know, I was starting to get some publicity. You know, Wayne Goddard had had said some nice things about me in blade magazine ed also so i had gotten some publicity and the people were interested in the hunting knives that i you know they were they were really good hunting knives and and you know my back then i my guarantee was if it's not the best knife you've ever had i'll buy it back Mm -hmm. and you know i only ever bought back one and it wasn't it was only because he just didn't like the handle yeah uh so yeah that was it was fun times. I, I was pushing as hard as I could on the performance side of, of knives at that point. Well, and that's where I think probably a lot of people don't, don't know about, I mean, when they look at your knives and they follow your stuff today and what you were making back then, um, 
you know, obviously the knives look a lot different and there's a lot different kind of purpose and function behind the knives you're building today. But, you know, you were like, like you kind of mentioned, you, you mean, you were really serious about the performance cutting. I mean, you were using, you were making using knives, knives that you would be using in your outfitting business or your hunters would be wanting to use. And you guys were, you were getting pretty well known for, for that style of knife. Yeah, I, I had plenty of business. I, I made was making good money making those knives in uh, Stevensville, I think, Stevensville, Montana. And I met Shane Taylor and Wade Coulter. And at that point, I'd been in Montana long enough and making knives the whole time that I thought I knew all of the knife makers in Montana or had at least heard of them. Mm-hmm. And... Here comes this long-haired, funny guy, skinny little guy with pulls out a, a goblin friction folder with a Damascus steel blade. And all I could think of was, who the hell are you? Why don't I know who you are? Yeah. And then the same with Shane. Shane pulls out this Damascus knife, and I'm thinking, man, I, I thought I, you know, but it was an instant friendship. We just got along and... So from that point on, sometime 92, 93, the three of us, and then shortly after that I met Barry Gallagher, and that, that is, you know, the core of what the, the Montana Mafia thing. But I, my interest in Damascus had already been sparked, even though I was making high-performance 52-100 knives. So that's, that kind of catches up to how this all evolved, I guess. Sure. Well, and you kind of... Uh, skated over that Montana Mafia thing. That was kind of a term that came up later on down the road. Was it was it Schwarzer? Yeah, I I think it was ninety six. It could have been ninety seven. That uh, we were at a hammer in at Shane Taylor's outside of Mile City, Montana, and Steve was there, and and he was really. I had had two hammer ins, I think, before that, but. That was, we were really kind of hitting our stride with it when it came to Damascus Steel and and Barry and I with folding knives. And Steve, he was the first one to see it. We were really, I mean, I guess, you know, the way it's been described is there was just a lot of energy uh, going around right then. So Steve was the first really you know, internationally known knife maker to step into the middle of that and see it. And he came up with that Montana mafia term. Yeah. And that's, and that was kind of a term for that group of guys. And, and what was happening during that time period was, was really, and I don't know if it's ever, I don't think it'll ever be replicated again because it was kind of something that happened somewhat out of necessity. I mean, the, the only way back then to really learn or to advance really fast as fast as fast as all of you knife makers were were learning was to be able to bounce ideas off of each other and and work together and the only way you could do that back then was in person there wasn't you know there wasn't really the ability to you know there's a lot of guys that can learn especially if they have some talent and some ability you know there we touched on earlier but you can learn a lot right off the internet and do it in your own shop and and really in, increase what you're doing quickly but back then there was just an excitement level um, that was that was pretty incredible, and I think anyone from the outside, especially some of those older makers that 
that had more experience could see this young group of guys coming and like the the improvement happening with everybody's knives from I mean year to year or even month to month just the improvement with the steel and the knives was was pretty I think pretty obvious to those guys yeah we we were uh, it's unique uh, what went on I've I've thought about it a lot over the years because I've you know some of the people that I respect very much in the knife world you know have have commented on it and and comment commented on the influence of it and you know I've spent years and years teaching all over the country sometimes even internationally some hoping that I would see that again and only once have I seen a group where I thought it might work but it didn't they they the group fractured and it's hard to explain I I think you know there are a lot of factors we were the four of us were really close to the same age. I think there's only three years difference in the four of us total. Um, we were relatively at the same point in our knife making careers as far as ability, and for whatever reason, we never let egos or competition be a negative thing. There was for sure competition. We pushed each other, mm-hmm. but it was never a negative. And I don't know why that happened because I'm. You know, I'm an ultra competitive person. If I let mm-hmm. it, ha- I try to control that now as I've gotten older. But I, I don't know why it didn't. And um, I'm one of the one of the guys who commented on it, and who one, uh, there's no one in the knife world I respect more, was Don Fogg, and he he came to my hammer in in '97 and was the demonstrator, and after four days. I was taking Don back to his room for the night and we were talking and we had really started a friendship. It was obvious, you know, we were, we got along. We, we had a lot, a lot of things that we could talk about. And he told me that night, he said, Rick, I've never seen this kind of energy since it was me and fit, uh, me and Jimmy Fikes and Jim Schmidt. Mm -hmm. He said, don't, don't, don't lose it. And probably within four or five years, it w- you could tell that it was different. And I, I, I think that's, looking back on it and understanding it, I think, I think it, it's natural. I don't think you can maintain that level. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> because we all started finding our own direction as we progressed in our careers and our skill levels got higher. You know, for me, initially it was all about the Damascus and then it started into the folding knives. And, and, you know, for Shane, I think him, not as a negative, I think the Damascus is still a bigger focus for him, say, than me. Wade, the focus was never the Damascus. It was the whole thing. that, uh, And he, his style was so unique back then. Right. And for Barry, it was more just the folders. He liked to make Damascus, but it was never his a focus for him. It was it was the folders and art and design. So it was it was a unique combination. But we did. We started to, you know, not we're still all friends. We get along great, and I love I love those guys. They're they're you know they're like my family. Um, but you know we all kind of found our own path 
which I think is good, really. Well, and there's also, there's just, it's pretty hard with anything to keep up the level of excitement that was there in the beginning. It was really more, I, I don't know that there was really any thoughts at that point about, um, you know, thinking about careers or where careers are headed or whatever. It was all just about being excited about just getting better and, and just like, what you could do next. I mean, there was just so much excitement that I, I don't know that it's possible to, I don't, and it's hard to explain the level of excitement and, and, um, energy. I mean, who can keep up that kind of energy? I mean, those, those hammer ends, you were there, you know, eight, nine o'clock in the morning. And then the last forge was getting shut off at two or three in the morning. And it was just nonstop. Yeah. I, I don't remember. I know that, like my at least my first three, maybe my first four hammer ins. There was one night in the weekend that we never did shut the forge off. We we would be there all night, uh, but you know we were a lot younger. And for <laughs> so, people that don't know what a hammer in is, I mean, basically it's just it's a gathering of people who are who are learning and teaching, and that was really kind of a. I I, I think you were really the catalyst of that whole group as far as kind of being the first one to, you know, that I remember, and I might be wrong, but to actually host a hammer in and then bring in, it wasn't just a group of you guys getting together, seeing what you could do, but you had the foresight to actually bring in kind of, you know, legends um, in, in the knife making world to teach you guys and to, and to share their, you know, their experience and, and, and help bring your guys' level up dramatically, even in just a three day stretch. Well, I my motivation was that I had been around enough. I had been to some knife shows across the country by then. And my first one was 95. So by then I had, you know, I was doing the Oregon show. 95 may have been my first New York show. I had been to the Blade show several times in Atlanta. So I had been around enough and I had seen these different kind of regionalized groups of knife makers and I saw that they were getting together and they were exchanging ideas. And I thought, we're not doing that in the Northwest. And I thought, we have to, we, you know, we have to do that. We can, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll just organize it. Mm-hmm. And what it amounted to, and I, I it sounds funny, and but it was truly my motivation. I basically, I organized a group of, 30 or so guys to pay to get someone to Lincoln, Montana that I wanted to learn from. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and it, it worked pretty well. I I think if you were a student of the history of knives, handmade knives, and especially Damascus steel, you would see that it, it had an impact. You know, there was a, there were a lot of new things came out of the Northwest in that time frame and, and continues on now there, not that I have anything to do with a lot of these guys. A lot of them, I don't even know now, but you see some pretty incredible work in the Northwest that, uh, is carrying that on. I, th- I think, uh, it's, it's kind of cool to watch. Yeah. So, and, and that's something I've seen in numerous articles, people, um, comment. I mean, even just on a podcast the other day, Aaron Wilburn, talked about, you know, what he's kind of learned and some of the stuff and um, some of the hammerings you've hosted. And so, and numerous other guys, there's knife makers all over that have, you know, given you credit for 
for what they learned at some of these hammer ins. Um, maybe even if it wasn't something directly you taught, maybe it was just you provide being the conduit to have other knife makers there teaching as well. So, um, now obviously at that point, that's when that's when things really started to explode, and that that group of knife makers. You guys weren't just having hammer ins together, weren't just friends, but I mean, you guys were traveling to shows together. Um, I mean, I, I I remember, you know, when I went to my first Eugene, Oregon show, you guys were pretty consistently traveling to those shows, either driving together or flying together as a group. Um, talk about some of that and the shows and and kind of some of the the craziness and the fun that was around <laughs> that. Some of the craziness I can't talk about. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, well, back then it was a, you know, there was sort of a show circuit that if you were going to be, you know, kind of a big time knife maker, you needed to be out there. So I, there were years I was doing six and eight shows a year. And most of those required flying. You know, Mm -hmm. Eugene was the one I could drive to, but there weren't a lot of drive to shows. I would fly to New York, sometimes twice a year to New York, Atlanta. I did shows in Arkansas, and and for a long time it was the group of us, uh, the four, the Montana Mafia group, and then Josh was at a lot of those shows mm-hmm. by then. Uh, so, yeah, there were, it was well. I I always say that people just cannot understand how much fun. I, you yeah, know, I. The Eugene, Oregon show has to be the best ever as far as just level of fun. Yeah, it was, that was kind of a, like a class reunion type of thing every year to go there and see, you know, Devin Thomas would be there and and guys that I didn't see regularly. And and it was just like this homecoming of friends that you, and we would, we called it Midnight Madness where we would be in somebody's hotel room till all hours talking about knives and, Damascus steel and and whatever but if it got to whatever Devin always steered it back to I you know with I do better if we just stick to knives (laughs) there were definitely it was funny because it was kind of like a younger group of kids and then every now and then there was a more of an elder statesman knife maker and it it seems at times if a Wayne Goddard was in the room or something like the the humor the language everything kind of cleaned up just a little bit um and then and then uh after some of those guys were gone, it was just it was just full on fun. And I remember being a kid, just trying to soak it all up, um, and and trying to stay awake mostly. And usually I failed by about midnight. But um, I remember you know knives spread out all over the beds. I mean back then everybody was bringing ten, twelve knives. I mean at least in the beginning there there was you know they weren't all four thousand dollar knives. Guys were trying to make a living and trying to pay for the show and. Um, because not everybody was making the same knife. Some guys were higher level and, than others, but everyone was passing around the new work they'd done and what they had found out or figured out and just sharing ideas. And it, it's it's something that you just don't see in other industries because everyone was there in those rooms telling everybody how they did this or how they did that, and it was a cool, really cool feel as far as helping each other. Yeah, it's... I, I I don't know how to explain it. I think you I honestly I think you just had to be there to yeah. to understand the the 
the level of excitement and the amount of fun, you know, I... The level of comedy. I mean, when, oh, you, well. when you put <laughs> Bob Kramer and, and Barry and, and Wade Coulter Wade, in a room yeah. together, it's... Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you Bob might be one of the funniest men on the planet, and, and now he's he's so refined and he's gotten to such a big <laughs> yeah. status. And He's too but, big time to be funny. <laughs> but I remember him standing on chairs in restaurants, entertaining the entire <laughs> restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there are restaurants in Eugene that have not forgotten us. There's no doubt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> McGrath's Fish House being number one. Wade, what was it? Wade told the one waitress, if uh, you, might, you might as well go get in my truck because you know I'm going to just follow you home anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's probably, you may not get away with that stuff now, 25 yeah, he, years later. Oh. We we did have obscene amounts of fun. Uh, I, I I never actually peed my pants but i came close laughing several <laughs> yeah. times at this age you probably would <laughs> yeah now it'd be bad yeah. yeah i have to wear a diaper to, out to dinner <laughs> yeah and then uh you know there was the atlanta blade show and back then it was really you know a lot more custom knives than it is today as far as you know it's definitely gotten a little bit more corporate or or you know factory knife type stuff but they're definitely and i know there's still kind of an aspect in in atlanta the blade shows to the pit but the pit back then was really pretty similar to those hotel rooms where um it was just constant laughter and and just filling that hotel with with laughter and um knives everywhere and and collectors getting to interact with the knife makers and and get to know who they are on a more personal level um, what, so what year did you end up actually testing and, and for and becoming a master smith? Uh, I tested, I, 97, I did my master smith test. Yeah. And when, when did you start making folding knives? 97. 97. Yeah, right before. I almost, I didn't, I had a folder made to, to put in with my five knives I submitted, but I, I, I didn't put it in. I ended up. So mm-hmm. I did all fixed blades for the test, but I, I had been making folders for six and there's, months. And there's been a real transi- transition, I guess, as there is naturally in most guys' careers. But with you, I mean, at that point, um, you were really known as kind of a large, really complicated, nice Damascus fixed blade knife maker. At that, you'd kind of transitioned somewhat, probably out of your, out of being known as much as a of the performance knives and the hunting knives, even though you did some of those, but would you say that's right? You were kind of more known for your, your big fixed blades. Well, I think that's the, I may not have been before the, that time frame, but right then is about when that happened. I, uh, in 97, I made a, a knife that I, it was one of my master Smith submission knives. It wasn't my test blade, but it was a pretty complicated for that time frame mosaic with composite ed bar edges on it. And I won the best Damascus at the Eugene show, which back then was a a prominent show. It was you know, it was a big big deal. Anyway. And I so I went I won that <clears throat> and I went to Atlanta three months later, two and a half, whatever that is now. And that was one of my five knives I submitted for Master Smith. I passed the master smith and I put that knife in to the competition and I won Damascus best Damascus at the blade show with that same knife. So I had won the best Damascus at two the two biggest knife shows in the world actually. Eugene was second to Atlanta back then. And 
I got a lot of publicity. That knife ended up being on in Blade Magazine several times. It was on Blade Magazine stationery for a year when they sent a letter or any kind of notification. My knife was on there. Mm-hmm. So I really, uh, I just got a lot of publicity right there for Damascus Steel. You know, I was still pretty well known as a 5200 performance knife guy mm-hmm. until then. Mm-hmm. And I went back, you know, I passed my Master Smith. You couldn't have made me mad that weekend. I mean, I passed Master Smith and I won Best Damascus at the Blade Show. Yeah. And had a great show. I went back the next year to Atlanta and I won Best Damascus again with a folding knife. So I had won two years in a row and that really got, you know, my pub, I just got tons of publicity. And back then it wasn't, obviously it wasn't social media. It was in Blade Magazine. Right. Uh, so yeah, that was about the time that all changed. But mm-hmm. it happened pretty quickly that it went from fixed blades to folders because, and I still kind of feel this way. Uh, it takes, a, it's really hard, I think, to use a lot of mosaic Damascus in big knives. I think it gets it it overpowers everything if it's cool. Mm-hmm. So I think the time frame was perfect for the steel I was making, and then and then the folding knives. It, it was it was the right timing for that. You know, folders were really coming on in popularity. People liked all this wild steel, but I think it kind of fit better in the smaller knives. Now who. Who was kind of the person or the mentor that got you into the into making folders, um, the kind of folder you were making? And well, what? at my hammer in in '96, I had Al Dippold, mm-hmm. and he was making kind of the it's the basically a New England style folder, screwed together like like Bill McHenry and and uh, Bill Sandin and those guys were making back then. So that's he, I wasn't making folders in 96 and I really didn't want to be a folder maker, to be honest. I, I like, I like big knives actually, but, uh, Barry Gallagher really folders were what he wanted to do. So he, he started right after that hammering and making folders. So at some point my hammer ins I think were in June back then. So halfway through 96, he, probably started making folders and some at some point in late 96 early 97 i went over and visited barry and made my first one mm-hmm. in his shop and i took notes that i still use when i teach now the notes I, i've modified them slightly but it's it's like step one through step 23 or something and yeah this didn't make the folder and you know probably 10 knives i looked at those notes every step and now i I, now I was this was this a point where were you a full time <coughs> knife maker at that point yet? Yeah, I was full time in sometime in ninety five. Mm-hmm. I my shoulders were so bad from years of packing a chainsaw around the mountains that I couldn't continue with logging. Mm-hmm. And my I like I say I was doing so well with the fifty two one hundred hunting knives. I knew I could make a living, so I I quit logging before I wrecked myself so badly that I had had needed surgery so um 
Now, stepping back just a little bit, at some point there in that, you know, back in the early 90s, you actually kind of had the wherewithal. I mean, I don't think maybe a lot of people know this about you, but you are you tend to be kind of an idea guy and kind of somebody that makes stuff happen. Um, and you started the Montana Knife Makers Association. Is yeah, right? I was on the ground floor of that. I, I you know... I saw that other places had other states and, you know, I was so excited about knives and everything to do with knives. So it was a, I, you know, I can't remember everybody that came to the first meeting. We did it in Kalispell. Barry, Barry and I traveled together. I, Ed Caffrey was there. Um, I don't remember if Jerome, I think Jerome came to that, Jerome Winand. Mm-hmm. I wish I could remember. I, jeez, uh, uh, Bob Crowder. I mm-hmm. think Bob was there. Yeah, we so we formed it, uh, and you guys put on a show, and that- yeah, we had shows. They still do. I'm, I'm yeah. not. I'm not involved anymore. Uh, but yeah, they still have shows, and it was a fun, fun time, mm-hmm. you know. And then you know, sadly, some egos got involved when I was there, so I backed away. Right. Uh, but yeah, I it's still going. I every year I think I should make it into Missoula and just walk through the show. But it, I, usually I hear about it a week after it's happened. Yeah, yeah, they have a small show there. Um, usually at the Harley Davidson shop there, in sometime in I think it's maybe April now. But so back to that kind of ninety seven time frame ish kind of or ninety nine right in there. So you're you're making folders um, and then. You start seems like getting more involved in the American Bladesmith Society, and I don't know if I have my dates really that correct, but um, you know, talk about kind of that that transition where you end up you end up becoming a board member. Um, how, how did that all kind of transpire? Yeah, um, in '97 when I passed my Master Smith test, right there at the Blade Show, I uh, Jerry Fisk approached me about teaching at the ABS school. So I did. I went and taught a, the second half of a intro bladesmithing course. And then they started having me come down once a year and teach Damascus classes at, at the school in Texarkana. So that was my, you know, I obviously I was a member of the ABS for years. And after having taught a bunch and, and teaching at some of their hammer-ins as well, I was asked to be on the board of directors. I excuse me. I think oh one. I'm. I'd have to look, but I think it was oh one. And I was on the board for ten years, mm-hmm. and then stepped down. It's in, it's insane to think that's twenty years ago this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. So you were on the board, um, and and pretty involved in. Um, a lot of their operational stuff and what you were doing. And, and the American Bladesmith Society is, um, you know, it was kind of started, what, Bill Moran and B.R. Hughes and some of those guys. and Don Hastings and, um, jeez. And back Bagwell, then, Bill Bagwell. back in, you know, the 80s and 90s, that was really kind of known. There was really two kind of knife-making factions. There was the forging group that was kind of the American Bladesmith Society type people. And then there was the Knife Makers Guild where you had more of the stock removal guys. And 
you know, for some people there seem to be rivalries between the organizations and whatnot, but it seems like more when we were involved, a lot of that had died down or by the time you were a board member, the guild had kind of had some issues and maybe wasn't as prevalent, but the, the ABS was a pretty big, you know, had, they, gr- had grown pretty, pretty good size. The ABS was thriving and I, I believe they still are. I'm not involved on the, on the board. But, uh, yeah, they were, it was a time of, you know, Damascus knives. Damascus was, was the big thing in, mm-hmm. in the knife world right then. So that's, that's for the most part, that's the ABS. I mean, guys that, they're, you know, there are always guys who are not joiners. I don't join groups. I don't do this. And there are guys that slam the ABS because they're, supposedly a southern click and or whatever but you know anybody that forges are they're kidding themselves if they you know if they think they've started in the last 20 years and they would have started if it with without the abs they're wrong Mm -hmm. abs saved the forge blade you know bill moran and and what he did and informing and and getting those guys together Mm -hmm. uh it did it saved the forge blade and and their their whole platform of teaching has risen the level of all knives. When I when I was a young knife maker, when I was making stock removal knives, when I first started forge knives, my impression, and I think I was right, and I'm sure it was a general perce- perception of knives, was that stock removal knives were much more refined. Forge knives were rougher; they weren't as, not as good a fit and finish. Mm-hmm. That is no longer the case. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, there are guys like Tim Hancock. Tim Hancock, to me, changed everything with the forge knife. Mm-hmm. He, his level of of perfection. Couldn't make a cleaner knife. Right. And, that you know, that's carried on. If you, Once someone sets that standard, you're working towards that. And, and Well, and it seems like back then, um, you know, if you wanted some fairly serious publicity. Um, I mean, it was a big deal even back then to pass your journeyman test. Um, you know, becoming a journeyman knife maker back in the 80s and 90s meant you made a pretty damn nice knife. And there weren't very many of you in the country that could do that, um, at least in that time frame. And and passing your Mastersmith test, you know, kind of guaranteed that, I mean, it kind of gave you at least um, somewhat of an automatic... Um, bit of credibility about your work and, and also got you into blade magazine and into some of the publications and, and uh, you know, what, what some people did after they passed their master Smith or if they advanced or not, you know, is a different story, but it was definitely kind of a rite of passage. I mean, that, that, that was really a way, I mean, nowadays, you know, there's tons of knife makers out there that could pass a master Smith test if they wanted to. Um, but they're not involved, maybe. Um, but, I mean, I don't know. What do you think on all that? I mean, it was a pretty big, that was a big part of the knife world back then, at least in the forging world. Well, uh, yeah, it is. And I, I don't think it's, it, it's gone. I think it, it is still a big part. I think it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. When I passed in 97, I think, I think there were right, somewhere between 55 and 60 had passed at that point total. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know now. I think it's 130 maybe. So in 23 years, 
it's maybe doubled, a little over doubled. So that it's a pretty exclusive group, and and there are definitely guys that could pass it if they wanted, and they're not in, they're not interested, and that doesn't. It's it's no strike against them. They just don't want to be involved in that. But you know, I I my feelings on a lot of that have evolved over the years and even pass or fail i think anybody that does that i have some sort of connection with mm-hmm. because they have the balls to take five of their knives into a room and lay them down and say all right tell me right. am i good enough right to me that that separates you a little you know i, I it's not a little thing i I don't know in my life, I've been married and divorced twice. <laughs> I've done lots of things in my life, and I don't know if I've ever felt more pressure than I did that mm-hmm. day, sitting there waiting for these five guys to tell me. Right. So you're in front of your peers, and everyone knows you're going for it. It's not secret. Exactly. I mean, you're, you're at the biggest knife show in the world, and and you're putting yourself in a position to potentially fail in front of people you look up to and people that look up to you as well yeah it's a so like i say i i think it's a big deal if nothing else then then you you have that in you you're not afraid Mm -hmm. you're gonna just say all right i'm doing it and and you're gonna tell me if i'm good enough and i i i think the fact that even just paying your dues year to year you know you, you know it's it's a pretty small amount of money that you have to pay for dues and um you know, to me, it's it's an organization that, you know, their job is not to promote your knives, to sell your knives, or their not, job is not necessarily to promote knife-making sales and whatnot, even though they do, they have been involved in putting on a show the last several years, last decade or so, but um, it's, you know, but its original intent was to pre- preserve and promote the art of the forged blade. I mean, that was kind of the original idea of the founding group, and I mean... If you look at where they're at today, it's and where the knife making is today. I mean, it's never been bigger or more popular, especially forging. I think it's kind of mission accomplished. You know. Well, yeah, their mission statement is to preserve the forge blade. Mm-hmm. So you know they are they've been ridiculously successful mm-hmm. at that. Uh, I'm sure beyond anyone's wildest dreams, the success of of the organization and you know again for all the all the naysayers, I, I think, you know, there's way more good than bad. And and I think what you were saying is is somewhat similar to how I feel about, I mean, I have, I have plenty of feelings, a lot I don't necessarily, we don't need to discuss here, but, you know, about like the show Forged in Fire, um, you know, everybody gets asked all the time, oh, have you been on that? Have you been on that? And there, there are a lot of knife makers that don't, and there's a lot of things to maybe not necessarily like about the show, However, you do have to respect the fact that, especially knife makers who are at a fairly high level that go on that show, you're putting your in a, you're putting yourself in a position to fail in front of people, and that's similar with the Master Smith test and Journeyman. Um, yeah, I you know I don't you know I have mixed emotions about that show, um, and I you know of course was asked the, the I I believe I was one of the first people asked because they. 
when they started the show, they approached Phil Lowbread, and Phil said, if you, well, if you want the best knife makers, here's a list of them, and they're in the AKI. Well, I'm one of those 25 guys, so right. I was asked early on. Um, I There are several reasons I haven't done it, and none of them are worrying about embarrassing myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the main thing to me is that I have spent almost 40 years building a reputation and I'm not going to go on television and make something in three hours that could affect that. Right. You know, and that's, that is my main thing. Right. The other thing is I don't like the premise of them basically having an almost free television show. (laughs) Right. If they paid the contestants, I might be more likely to, you know, besides the winner, I know the winner gets paid. I don't like that. I don't, I, it's, and this may piss some people off and it may, ostracize me in part of the knife world but i don't i've never been in a knife publication that asked me to pay to be in it i won't do that right i I, you don't have a publication without us same with that television show so that that is one of the reasons i haven't been on it Uh, well and they've they've never really adjusted their you know when they they set their prize winnings and their standards when they were a pilot and not sure if they could make it and now they're one of the most popular shows on tv you know, making who knows how much more money. Um, and they still aren't willing to, to up the prize money for first, second place, maybe pay third place and fourth place a little bit more. Um, you know, and they also, you know, some of where I have some of the issues and we're getting a little off topic, but like, you know, the fact that, I mean, they won't even put your last name on there. They won't put your website address. They won't, they're not really, it has helped knife making to a degree. Um, obviously, I mean, it's, it's helped, produce a lot more knife makers for sure and more collectors i mean i've definitely sold knives myself to people who you know fell in love with forged and fire but um they could definitely do a lot more for the knife community and their contestants who are helping build their show you know but um but no just more of that point of like being willing to put yourself out there and that's where i I, i've told people about asking about the journeyman or the master smith test now don't go do it if you're doing it because you think you're just going to get a a shit ton of orders when you're when you pass it's to me it's more of a personal accomplishment and and accomplishing a goal and putting yourself in a group of names that will then live on forever you know yeah i i I agree to me it's, it's personal i you know for me my motivation once i had my head straight because early on part of my motivation was to do to get it before someone else that I was kind yeah. of had, had had issues with but once I realized that <clears throat> was driving me I I kind of backed away and and got my head straight <laughs> because I think that's a terrible motivation for anything right uh, so I you know it was because all of the people that I respected the most in the knife world had done it and I wanted to be in that group because I respected those guys the most. And it, uh, so that was it, you know. I And it, and honestly, for me, when it was a turning point when I was done with the knives and I laid five knives out all together and I looked at what I had done and I knew that I wouldn't have pushed myself like that for years. Right. But that test forced me to do it, and, and it was it was a turning point for me. Sure. So, uh, from from there, you just kind of kept shooting up through the knife world as far as, and you, you know, your level of your knives just got 
better and better and progressed and um it kind of all culminated in 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 an invitation to uh join the art knife invitational um what what year did that did that happen and and what was that like well you know i mean it i've been incredibly incredibly fortunate in 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 knives and have you know i've done i've set goals i've accomplished those goals i've i've been recognized beyond you know reason i, I there's i think in uh somewhere around 2000 i was in 18 issues in a row of blade magazine embarrassing almost it was so much i did honestly call steve shackleford and say steve please don't put me in for a while people are going to hate me (laughs) other knife makers you know but you know and then i went to italy and i got rated as a maestro in the italian guild and just stuff you would never because of knives i've been around i've been to italy six times because of knives i've got a wall full of awards for mm-hmm. knives and that's all great and and it's nice it's recognition and but to be asked in 2015 to to be a member of the art knife invitational is another level i i, I don't even I, I really don't know how to explain it other than to say it's i don't know where you go from there to top that as a knife maker i really don't uh Maybe you win the Buster Award at the AKI. Mm-hmm. I, other than that, I well, and, and, and explain what the Art Knife Invitational is and well, why it's such a big well, deal. Um, <clears throat> the Art Knife Invitational is a show that was started in the early '80s by a knife collector, Phil Lowbred, who the premise is that he was he invited the 25 most collectible knife makers in the world to a one-day show where they provided a customer list and the and the customers were also invited. And the show was in Reno for, I think, two years. And there was about a nine-year break. And then again in the early 90s, he started it up again. And it's been continuous since then, every other year in San Diego until this year, 2021. It's moving to Las Vegas with new ownership. Phil passed away. Mm-hmm in 2017 i believe but yeah it it's uh for me uh you know there have been points in my career where i had that feeling of i don't know if i belong here and and the first time i walked in the room at the art knife invitational was one of those uh to see the legends absolute legends of the business well, and what makes that invitation so special is it comes from those legends. Yes, that you that when there is an opening, those other me, the the members, the twenty five. If there's an opening, there's not twenty five. There's twenty four or however many openings. But those those makers vote on who gets invited. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it is. It's I again. I don't know what could be to me. I I don't know what could be a higher honor. I I, I don't take it lightly. I. I I take the show very seriously. It's it's every other year we are we are required to bring three knives minimum, eight knives maximum. When you there's a catalog printed, when you put those descriptions in the catalog, you have to show up with those knives. So there's a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it's it's a pretty special thing. Uh, I hopefully I'll finish my career at an AKI sometime. <laughs> sure. Well, and that's a. Uh, I mean, you know, I encourage anyone listening to this. There's a lot of new makers. You know, we are in the. That's kind of why I brought up Forged and Fire because I knew we were going to kind of get into some of this later. I wanted to anyway. Was. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's an explosion of new people to the knife world in the last, you know, five to 10 years. And quite frankly, a lot of them, I'd say a large majority of people are, you know, a large number of them anyway, don't have any idea what, that the AKI even exists or what it is. And especially the makers within it, because let's face it, most of those knife makers that are in there are, you know, 50s 60s 70s they're they're legends of kind of of yesterday even though they're still making legendary knives of today but they're not necessarily super active on instagram and on facebook and and so you know a lot of these guys are making knives in between those shows every two years they're making knives that are immediately bought or sent to customers or orders um you know, maybe you see occasionally in Blade Magazine, but I'd, I'd even contend that a lot of those guys don't even necessarily get them photographed in a way that, you know, the, the way the knife magazines work, you have to pay for photography and then they submit those knives to magazines. So I'd say even a lot of those knives don't necessarily make it into the magazines. And um, so I, I think there's, you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't go and, and learn a little bit about the AKI, but more importantly than the show is learn about the makers that are in it. Yeah, I... Oh, excuse me. Uh, I If you want to see the absolute highest level of handmade knives as art, then you need to be looking there. There's mm-hmm. there's no question. There may be There are guys that aren't in it that make unbelievable knives, but if you want to see them in a, as a group, you go to the artknifeinvitational.com website and check it out. It's 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 pretty spectacular. Uh you'll you'll see knives from from guys that you probably can't buy one unless you get into as a guest to the AKI. They 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 have a lifetime's worth of orders. They're, you know, they don't make knives for sale other than for that show. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's a, if you're interested in knives at that level, or if you just want to see them, I mean, it it is, it will change your attitude if you if you haven't seen that kind of thing. You know, there are there are knives every year at the Art Knife Invitational, every other year when the show is that sell for fifty thousand to well over a hundred thousand dollars, right? You know, so that it's not you're not going to see not that to be taken even, lightly. You're <laughs> not going to even see that really at the Blade Show or. Even Very little like that. Yeah, yeah, maybe a guy here or there, but um, you, you'll just never see a collection of talent. You know, at the Blade Show, you might have one or two of those guys show up or maybe at a different show. Um, but just to see that level of collection of talent in one place. And, um, you know, I know, you know, Art Knife Invitational started an Instagram page. Hopefully that'll start getting some more traction and really just to be able to see the knives. Um, not necessarily you know, expecting everybody listening to this podcast to be going to the art knife show or, or even make it into it someday. Maybe there will be a few, but, uh, you know, they're pretty good knives to look at for inspiration for sure. Yeah. And as uh, this is the first year, this will be the first, um, art knife invitational show that we have used social media to promote the show beforehand. 
um, as makers until this show, we, we've been prohibited from show from showing even work in progress photos of knives that we were making for the show. We, as a group voted after the 2019 show to change that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, now we are allowed to show photos work in progress or finished work. I, Personally, I'm not showing any finished mm-hmm. AKI work. I am showing work in progress on my Instagram mm-hmm. and Facebook pages. But I do want, I like the element of surprise or Christmas type effect of not showing the finished piece. So I will show works in progress. Well, and there's a bit of a reward there for the makers that make the, or the collectors that make the effort to go there and. Yeah, spend the money to get there and buy those knives. So, um, and I'm sure you're going to be sharing those. I know you do now. You share those pictures after the shows. After over, the so. show, yes, I show yeah. all of all of my. I'm, I'm I'm very proud of those knives. They are special. Everyone that goes there goes there with knives that are a step above their normal. Right. So. Well, and there's that whether it's a competition factor or just a factor of like, like you kind of alluded to it earlier of not wanting to be embarrassed. I mean, everyone there knows that everyone else is bringing their best. So, you know, naturally everyone, you know, a a lot of times maybe when you go to a show like a blade show or something, you might take one that or two maybe of that highest level you can possibly do. But, um, at that show, every one of those knives is pretty much at that level. So it's pretty cool. Um, so, moving forward here, you, um, you know, you're full time here in, in, in Lincoln, but you've also been involved in the community. You started a, a sculpture park here in Lincoln. How, kind of explain how that went on. Yeah. Uh, you'll forgive me if I don't remember the years, I think maybe 2012, uh, I was teaching a Damascus course at the Pratt fine art center in Seattle. And, the artist in residence at Pratt at the time was uh, Kevin O'Dwyer from Ireland, and he uh, he took he took the Damascus class. He was a silversmith, so he's interested in metals, and he thought it'd be fun to take this Damascus week class. So he did, and he and I really hit it off. And uh, I had no idea who he was or you know how well known a silversmith, but he's incredibly well known uh, silversmith sculptor and after the week-long course we stayed in contact he's from ireland uh and he at one point asked if he could come to lincoln and and work on the damascus some more with me and i said yeah as long as you're going to teach me some silversmithing stuff because i I, stuff i want to know so he came to lincoln for two weeks i think and we we forged and soldered silver and did all kinds of stuff you know and really became friends and he was in that trip he was showing me this sculpture park that he had started in ireland and a reclaimed peat bog where they had harvested peat and so he had done this sculpture park and brought artists in around the world and they they basically celebrated the heritage of that that uh industry in this bog and become a huge tourist attraction in in ireland and the day he was going to fly home, we were having breakfast in town in Lincoln and looking across the street at these giant ponderosa pines. And he said, man, this would be a great place to do a sculpture park like that. He said, these giant trees. And that was it. We had that conversation a little bit. Never, never, I really 
didn't take it seriously. I drove him to the airport. He got on the plane and left, and I could not stop thinking about mm-hmm. this idea of a of a sculpture park here. So after several weeks of this just not going away, I invited, I don't remember the number, half a dozen or ten community members who I thought would understand the idea. And, you know, but I also invited some I thought would not and wouldn't want it to happen because I wanted to hear, Mm -hmm. you know, and overwhelming support to do it. Let's, this sounds great. Let's do this. So I got a hold of Kevin and said, "Man, I, I, we have, we have some support here. I, I think we can move forward if we want." And it did. It was a year of traveling to museums and and all over to make contacts and find out where to find support, where to look for grant money, where to do this, where to do that, and fundraising on the at the community level, all the way up to the national level, international level. Mm-hmm. We got the money in the first year. We had four artists come in and do sculptures, and it's grown to, honestly, I don't know what. I, I was director for three years, and then I stepped down. I, I felt like I needed to get back focused on mm-hmm. my work. It still continued on. There, I, I don't. No, I think this year or next year will be the last installation because they're space. Uh, but they've uh, they just won the governor's award for tourism for the state of Montana. They uh, supposedly fifty thousand visitors last year. So, That's incredible. So yeah, yeah it's, it and it's a, become a big. And these aren't just small, like small little sculptures. Although I mean, these are massive, massive, massive things that you can walk in, and some are down in the ground and obviously some above ground you guys originally kind of the first big piece of it was I remember you guys moving a big teepee burner you know this huge burner they used to burn sawdust in right at a sawmill yeah yeah that was was kind of a uh, a rodeo uh I mean it it ended up going really well but I mean that there were a lot of people questioning around here if it was even possible um I mean we're talking about a massive yeah it's steel structure I don't know what the diameter is it has to be 40 feet, 50 feet diameter at the base, and then yeah. it ended 100 feet 100 high. sub feet tall. Yeah, it's incredible. quite a project. <laughs> I think it's cool that you just kind of, I mean, that kind of shows some of the involvement you've had in the community besides, you know, coaching and coaching doing some of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, just babysitting snot-nosed kids on a baseball diamond. But uh, um, so... You know, back to back to the Damascus and kind of that stuff. I just kind of wanted to cover all this in general, but I don't, I don't think these days. Um, and and I'm going to be doing some podcasts with some of these guys we might name, and some of them are gone. But uh, you know, I kind of wanted to have you kind of just name some of the the makers that were instrumental in uh, your knife making career, as far as learning the, the Damascus, I know you mentioned Don Fogg and we, we just kind of mentioned Schwarzer in passing, but there were some knife makers that were doing stuff. I mean, long before you were making knives. Sure. Yeah. They're responsible for a lot of the, the mosaics that we see these days and the Damascus stuff that's happening today that I, I don't think a lot of people even know, you know? Yeah. I'm, you know, I've been very fortunate that, uh, I'm of the generation where I actually got to meet and become friends with 
most of the pioneers of, of Damascus steel in this country. So influence wise, it, I've always said Don Fogg and I, I wouldn't change that other than to say that, it, that may be belittling what Shane and I had mm-hmm. between us, because I think the two of us, we came up with a lot of stuff and it was because of, our influence on each other. Mm-hmm. So I would, <clears throat> I, I'm going to have to split it as the, my biggest influences there, but Steve Schwarzer, no doubt. Daryl Meyer, uh, got lucky enough to be friends with Daryl, you know, and, and spend time with him. Hank Nick Meyer, Al Dippold. <clears throat> right. Remember you had Rob Hudson here. Yeah. Rob Hudson. I, I, there was a time when I just thought Damascus does not get any cooler than Rob Hudson's big composite bar stuff. Right. And I, and I still think it's, you know, it's absolute world-class. I, I think I love people got to go back and Google up some pictures. Maybe there's some old wire pictures or whatever of, of some of Rob Hudson's multi-bar Damascus blades. And we're talking, what, late 80s, early 90s? I mean, it was yeah, early in, 90s. In, in through the late 90s, and then it was about, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think a lot of people think a lot of what's happening today is is new, and there's definitely some new things happening. But um, I mean, they they were making stuff that even a lot of the ABS guys, the the Bill Morans of the world, and some of those guys, I don't even think could comprehend what some of what you know Don Fogg and some of those guys were doing back then. Um, yeah, <clears throat> if you you know, there are certain things I think if you're really into knives as a, as a maker especially that you should have and one of those things is a set of the wire books knives or knives of interest or something i can't remember point, but point of interest points of interest yeah. yeah i think there's five of those and if you if you're really into knives and you and you're interested in the history you definitely need those books and i can't remember when in the late 90s early this century I was messing around with <clears throat> different patterns, and I made something. I thought, man, this is so cool, and no one's done this. I, I just know no one's done this. And I called up Don Fogg and said, Don, you should see this, what I did, and I explained to him what I did. So I know in his head he knew what it looked like. and He said, yeah, that sounds really cool. So nothing else. We go on talking about other things. Well, sometime later, I'm looking through this Knives Points of Interest edition one or two, volume one or two, and here's a Don Fogg Tanto with that exact pattern in it that was made in the 80s. He did, 20 years before I did it, he didn't even say, oh, I already did that. <laughs> you know, the guys were doing stuff 500 years ago mm-hmm. that for a while we thought we were the new guys, you know. Well, right. this is so cool, This, but no. Uh, if you get... Uh, the book on Damascus steel. Did you see some of the stuff that was done on guns and swords mm-hmm. 500 years ago? Mm-hmm. There were radio patterns, there are jelly rolls there, you know, there are W's patterns, there are twists. And it's just, so everything now is an offshoot of something that someone's done. You see so much now that is W's generated. Right. Patterns that, and it's great. W's is a great, 
thing and, it, and I'll go on my own personal rant. It's not crushed W's. It's W's. <laughs> None of the guys who are in on the early Jimmy Fikes, Don Fogg, I've never heard one of them say crushed W's. They just said, I made W's. Yeah. I hate that because to me, somebody somewhere along the line threw crushed in there like they were doing something new and different. Right. And they're not. So right. there's my rant on that. Yeah. I hate that. <laughs> and uh, I usually will tell people in person, but this is my chance to tell a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least two or three will listen yeah. to this. It's only the second podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and I, I, I guess, so where, what, what are some, I know you've been in some books, you've got your own book. Um, you've also got, uh, well, I might be speaking on a term, but I think you've got some like how to build folder DVDs or maybe, I don't know if you want to talk about like some of the books that you're proud of you've been in or some of the books that you have that maybe people can buy or, or how to stuff. Um, yeah, <coughs> uh, man, <laughs> like I say, I've been ridiculously fortunate as far as publicity. So, you know, if, if you leave out the magazines and, and say the knives annuals, uh, I've been in quite a few public 500 knives. I'm in that, uh, there's an Italian book that I have a couple pages in. Um, and there's a new, a really fantastic book by Francesco Pocchi that is just AKI knives. And I'm in that, uh, it, it's a super expensive book though, like $400 book, but yeah. it is, it is, it's the nicest book as far as quality mm-hmm. of the, of the book itself. Um, I do have a, a DVD set that's instructional on, uh, making folders, lighter lock folders. Mm-hmm. Shane and I did do a two DVD set of, on Damascus steel, but I, I've, it's, it's out of publication. I have one or two sets and I don't know how many Shane has left. Mm-hmm. Uh, when well, you still I put was on the dives that what's that knives, Blades Guide to Making Knives. Oh, right. I wrote a a Damascus Steel chapter in that, the first edition. The second edition, I wrote a chapter on making an art Damascus mm-hmm. folding dagger. Yeah. I, I mean, well, and you're still teaching. You still uh, put on a hammering each year this year, and um, I know you're still traveling around a bit around the country teaching at various hammerings and stuff. Yeah, um, I've I've decided to cut back again on the teaching i i did a lot for for years and then i cut back and then the last three years or so i did a lot again and i i i need to cut back mm-hmm. it's it was too much away from home uh, right. so i'm going to cut back to small two or three person classes at my own shop and do mm-hmm. it several times a year is all uh for the most part if, if the right opportunity comes up you know like Two years ago, they asked me to come to Italy and do a thing. So, yeah, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the most part here, and just smaller classes, and, and kind of, I don't want this to sound wrong, but I don't I don't feel like I'm good at teaching beginners. I, I, uh, I tend to take for granted that people know things that they don't. So I feel like I skip over mm-hmm. too much. I think I'm a lot better at teaching a little 
intermediate or more advanced. So mm-hmm. that's that's what I want to focus on. Sure. Well, and I would I would say I mean, um, I, I you know I I don't know if you're necessarily underrated for teaching because I don't know that I've I've seen your rating, but uh, you know you're one hell of a teacher for sure. Um, obviously taught me a lot of what I know, <laughs> but also I mean seen you teach in a lot of different settings and um you know maybe you don't give yourself enough credit uh but uh, you know I know you're one of the definitely one of the more popular teachers at any event we go to so um you know I I would encourage people if they see you on a docket somewhere to hammer in or they see a class that maybe you're putting on um you know to kind of try and try and jump on that so uh I guess in closing, I just kind of, we'll wrap up. I know you're starting to get stuffed up with your, uh, your <laughs> pandemic. Um, uh, but you know, one thing I kind of want to ask people at the end of some of these things is, is how, how, what are, what are a couple of the things that you're most proud of and what, what would you, what, how do you want to be remembered? I mean, you know, in your, in your life or in your knife making career. And I know that's kind of a deep question, but you know, <laughs> Sometimes I think some, you know, maybe somebody wants to be known for their teaching or maybe it's a particular style of a knife or, or whatever. Um, might be something totally out of the knife world, but, you know. Well, I think, you know, for me, and you probably understand this, there's not really much out of the knife world mm-hmm. when it comes to if that's what you do. You know, my most of my closest friends are involved in knives. I, and, and you know, so much of my life involves knives, you know, like I said, I've been to Italy six times and I've, I've taken weeks when I go, but I'm there because of knives. Mm -hmm. So it's, I don't, I don't have a way to separate it anymore, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and and I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I get away from it when I want to, but realistically it is just, it's who I am. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I, I make stuff. That's, <laughs> I, it's what people say, you know, when you, you tell someone you, I'm a knife maker, they, they think, oh, you, you don't really have a job. Right. But it, it's not a job at, 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 after this long and, and at the level, it's what I, it's what I am. It's who I am. It's what I do. Mm-hmm. I make stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and fortunately at this point I get to make stuff that I want to make that's meaningful to me. I I would hope that that shows when I'm all done, mm-hmm. when you get that last book that had, that I has my knives in it, that when you look through those pages, you said, man, you know, there's something about those that, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't know how other people see that, what they recognize. I'm very proud of, the friendships, mm-hmm. you know, you and, and the Montana Mafia guys and, and all these people. I have friends around the world because of knives, and, and I'm proud of that. It, I, I hope it means I'm an all right mm-hmm. person. You know, I'm not a jerk about what I do, I hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, it's made me who I am. I think I'm a much better person than Mm -hmm. I was 30 years ago. And a lot of that has to do that. I've gotten to do something I love doing. Mm -hmm. I'm in a place that I'm very happy with my life. I'm very happy with what I make. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I, it's hard to put a finger on one thing, 
but all of those things I think add up to right being a pretty damn lucky person <clears throat> well and I can you know I, I I think what anybody that knows you or that's known you for this long or, or people that maybe go back and look at your stuff I I think what's most impressive about your career is just the progression you know it's the it's the never you know you reached a really high level with the you know the the you know using knife you know the the performance knife and and you you could have just kind of settled into that realm there and probably stayed busy making super high quality hunting knives forever you know and then you you reached a really high level with the big fixed blades with the really crazy damascus and and you were probably known really more as a damascus maker than a knife maker for a while in your career and then it seemed like your your artistry and your knives just kind of caught up to that Damascus and then, and then transitioned into the folders. And there might be a lot of people out there that consider you just a folder maker. Um, if, if they don't know, you know, if they've only started seeing your Instagram here a little bit lately. Now, obviously this week you've been posting nothing but fixed plates. So, <laughs> yeah. um, I think that diversity of what you've done and, and how you've grown as a knife maker, um, just as people do. I mean, you just, you learn and grow and, and mature and, um, and then the, you throw, you throw in the teaching, uh, we never even talked about your engraving. I mean, the fact that in the middle of all that, you kind of picked up engraving and gold inlay and, and, uh, and, and, you know, in the beginning it was pretty good. And now it's, you've developed into your engravings as good as your knives, you know, and, um, the whole package of all that as a career is pretty impressive. Obviously it's not done yet, but, um, I guess I just encourage people to to go seek out, you know, photographs not only of Rick but of of some of these guys we've mentioned here. Um, you know, books that are maybe somewhat easy to attain are, are those knives annuals that came out every year. You know, it's not a it's a pretty good cross section of what was being made at that moment in time in the knife world. Yeah, um, yeah, you can. They're a great way to see some some of the progression of what's gone on and styles and how things have evolved and what the fads were at the time or right. you know um maybe it was big fixed blades and then it was daggers or or folders or slip joints or whatever and um and that's the other part i think of you know you're not just a folder maker of one kind but you're obviously you do really nice multi-blade slip joints and um so anyway i mean i think that's about it unless you got anything else you want to add or i don't know if we didn't cover something um, oh, I, I I can't think of anything we didn't cover. I, you know, we, uh, yeah, we didn't me get, feel old. <laughs> we didn't get into any real good Atlanta Blade Show stories. Well, um, we might. Yeah. There's a couple in particular that yeah. are pretty good. We yeah. might we might have to get into a couple of those if we do a podcast with uh, Wade and Shane and yeah, we could do <laughs> as a group. <laughs> I think yeah, like it, well, I wouldn't have, none, none of the ones I'm thinking of would you know, be subject to any jail time. So I, I'd be willing no. to talk about them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll definitely do that. So um, anyway, uh, thanks a lot, Rick. I appreciate it. And um, glad you decided to coach baseball. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> worked out pretty good. Yeah. yeah for me. Yeah, anyway. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, folks. Um, thanks for listening. And uh, I think on this next podcast, we're going to have Don Fogg on. So um, tune into that one. Appreciate it.